So um, let's go on down here. And, and now I want to talk about prayer in Jesus' name. In verse, uh, Let me just start reading with verse 12 and we'll go down to these scriptures. He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He, <coughs> he shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. You know, that is a tremendous ministry of the Holy Spirit, that people just glide over this and don't think about it. But if you could just think that the Holy Spirit will show you things to come, boy, how would that change your life if you, instead of reacting to things, could see them coming? In just the financial realm, did you know this could make you a multimillionaire? Really could. If you knew what was going to happen with the stock market, the Holy Spirit will show you things to come. In relationships, how would this how would this change things? If you could anticipate and see things before they happen. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to show us things to come, but it doesn't happen automatically. You have to believe for it. I remember, this has been 25 years ago or something, I was... Uh, just reading these verses, and I came to this verse, and I got stuck on that one thing. And I got to thinking, how often does the Holy Spirit show me things to come? And I got to thinking, not very often. And I said, it's, it's got to be because I'm not listening, not because the Holy Spirit's not speaking. And so I started just seeking the Lord and saying, God, I want you to show me things to come. I believe that that's ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I just started spending some time, and instead of doing all of the talking when I prayed, I'd spend time just sitting still and listening and saying, I'm waiting for you to show me things to come. And one of the very first things the Lord showed me was real simple, but it was about my horses. I had five horses, and a guy in Green Mountain Falls was keeping them for me. I put up a fence around his property, but I kept them there. And this guy, he was a greeter at our church, Rocky Mountain Christian Center up there in Green Mountain Falls. And... Uh, he loved those horses being there. He would tell me every week, I love these horses being there. I don't have to mow the grass. says they keep everything eaten down. He just loved those horses being there. And it was free. He, he wasn't charging me anything for it. So anyway, one of the first things when I started saying, Lord, show me something to come. The Lord just spoke to me and I had this thought that you need to find another place for those horses. And I thought, I don't want another place. I like this place. It's really convenient. The guy... It's free. He's doing all of this for me. And, but, you know, I prayed that the Lord would show me. And so I started thinking about this. And over three or four days period of time, I had a guy come shoe my horses. And when he was shoeing my horses, he just said out of the blue, he says, you know, I've got uh, 40 or 50 acres or something. He says, if you ever want to just keep your horses out there, uh, I'll be glad for you to keep your horses out there. I'll let you keep them free. And I thought, well... This is what the Lord told me. So I agreed. We set it up. And I had it set up that on Tuesday morning, I was going to move my horses to this new pasture. And without any warning, no signs of this coming, Sunday morning, I went to church and Ralph walked up to me and he said, Andrew, he says, I've had all I can take. I can't handle those horses any longer. They got to be off my property Tuesday morning. It just totally broadsided. He had never expressed any dissatisfaction at all. And did you know that I would have been in a real bind? I'd have either had to give those horses away or something. Uh, or if I'd have paid for it, it's sometimes two, $300 per horse. That could have been $1,000 a month to uh, you know, keep those horses someplace. But God had already taken care of. And I told him, Ralph, I'm, I'm moving them on Tuesday. 
And, you know, that was a small thing, but boy, it was like, bingo, the Holy Spirit will show you things to come. And the next thing, there was two or three things, and then within a few months, the Lord showed me that we were going to get us a new place, that He was going to finally give us our house. And I've been living in this house now for, this will be my 19th year. All of those things started by me just saying, Father, I believe you're going to show me things to come. And He showed me steps, and I tell you what, I mean some major things in my life have come out of just letting the Holy Spirit show you things to come. Boy, it's, it's much better than being reactionary. In verse 14, it says, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he will take of mine and show it in, unto you. A little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me because I go to the Father. And he was talking about his death. He's going to be crucified and they wouldn't see him for three days. But then they would see him when he was resurrected because he was on his way to his father. In verse 17, Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while and we shall not see him. And again a little while and we shall see him. Because I go unto the father. They said therefore, What is this that he saith? A little while and you, uh, we cannot tell what he saith. You know, there ought to be some comfort in the fact that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying back then either. <laughs> of course, the difference is they didn't have the Holy Spirit to teach them. You do have the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, it says, Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask Him, and He said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of what I said? A little while, and you shall not see Me, and again a little while, and you shall see Me. Verily I say unto you that the, ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Now this is talking about in the new covenant, after the resurrection and after all these things. In that day, in this new covenant that we live in, you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You know, this is kind of a technical point. Some people say, who do you pray to? Do you pray to the Father? Do you pray to Jesus? Do you pray to the Holy Spirit? I believe that the Lord is mature enough to see what your heart is saying and translate it. But technically speaking, we are supposed to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus and receive. We receive directly from the Father. Lots of times people will talk directly to Jesus and I don't think that God gets offended over it. But technically, we are supposed to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus and uh, it says he will give it to you. In verse 24, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. You know, we use this terminology in the name of Jesus and asking in the name of Jesus. And it is so used, it's become trite. It's become nearly a cliche. And a lot of us don't understand what that's about. But when you're saying in the name of Jesus, in other words, you are invoking everything that Jesus did. You're saying because of His righteousness, because of what He paid, because of what He's done. It would be the same thing as if you were to call somebody up and say, uh, I'm calling for Andrew Womack. And Andrew asked if I would call you. People would respond to you 
based on how they would respond to me. And if, uh, you know, there's some people that don't like me, there are some people that do like me. If you were calling somebody who liked me, then my name would open up doors for you. It might get you in. Uh, matter of fact, I just had uh, uh, Derry and Karen Jolly with me from Charlotte, North Carolina. They traveled to our uh, Gospel Truth Seminars. And I had a number of people come up. And, and in the last two Gospel Truth Seminars, we've raised nearly 350 sponsors for their programs in Nicaragua and Mexico and stuff. And I had a bunch of people come up and say that, you know what, I don't normally do stuff like this, but because you recommend them, because you say this is the best missions program that you have ever seen, they support them. And man, they have raised those. That's a $10 a month support. And so 350 of those is $3,500 per month support I've raised for their ministry in our last two Gospel Truth Seminars. And it's because we they do that in my name. I give them my uh, credibility. I tell people that I trust these people and people who trust me now trust them and it opens up a door for them. So when you're praying in the name of Jesus, it's not just a religious phrase. It's not a formula that you're going through. What you're doing is you're talking to the Father and you're saying, Father, because your Son was righteous, because your Son was holy, because your Son satisfied you and you said that you would do anything that He asked, I'm asking in His name. I'm believing that you are going to move in my life because of what Jesus has done. That's really what you're supposed to be saying when you pray in the name of Jesus. And yet many people will sit there and say, Oh God, I'm fasting, I'm praying, I'm God, why aren't you moving in my life in the name of Jesus? That's taking the name of Jesus in vain. You're just using it as a vain repetition, but you aren't praying because of who Jesus is. Your whole prayer was all about what you've been doing. God, see what I've done? Now move because I've done this. Now you've got to do that. And then if you tack in the name of Jesus on that, you're praying in vain. You need to recognize that what the name of Jesus does, it gives us access to everything that the Father has just as if we were Jesus. When you're saying in the name of Jesus, you say, Father, I expect to get the same results that Jesus gets because my faith is in Him. It's not in myself. I'm not claiming my own righteousness. I'm claiming His. And then if, if Satan comes back and condemns you and makes you think, well, boy, you aren't worthy, what makes you think you'll get it? If you just understood what it means to use the name of Jesus, what a great privilege this is. He says, you can ask anything in my name and you'll get it just as if it's the same as me asking. Boy, that's a powerful, powerful promise. And you know what? Many people just do not understand what using the name of Jesus is all about. It changed everything. And I think I've already mentioned these things. I don't know if I've taught it in in depth, so I may not spend the whole time on it. But there is a major difference between the way Old Testament intercession is done and the way New Testament intercession is done because of this one issue about Jesus. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is only one God and only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator. And yet Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 says that Moses was a mediator. A mediator, by definition, the dictionary says a mediator is a person that stands between two opposing parties and seeks to reconcile them or to make them friendly again. 
It says 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their sins unto him. He has reconciled God to man. He's already taken care of this. Jesus mediated and has solved the problem. There is no longer this conflict and this anger between God and man. And so if you try and intercede the way that Moses did back when God was angry at man and Jesus hadn't come and our sins hadn't been paid for, if you try and intercede the way Moses did, the way Abraham did, and all of these people, then you know what? You are taking the place of Christ. You're saying Jesus didn't pay enough. And that's anti-Christ. Those are some strong statements. This is what I've been teaching on on television the last few weeks. And you know what? There's some people getting really upset over this, but there's a lot of people getting set free from it too. Because we have been praying as if Jesus hadn't come and paid for everything. And basically the church world is teaching that, you know what? You've got to be holy and you've got to do these things. And unless you live holy and do all of these things, God won't answer your prayers. Well, then you're saying that the name of Jesus isn't sufficient. You're taking the name of Jesus in vain. Why use the name of Jesus if using His name doesn't grant you what you what He said it would? It's like giving us power of attorney. He gave us the power of attorney over His name. Yes, ma'am. One, one of my personal pet peeves, and I don't know if this is worthy of being peeved over, but um, is when people pray in His name and they don't want to like say the name of Jesus, or they just say Amen and they don't even like add it. And I'm just, you know, I don't know what. Do you think God looks in their heart to see if they're... I think that God is, God is a merciful God. And if we had to say everything exactly right and cross every you know, T and dot every I, I don't think any of us would get very much. He looks at our heart, but I think it is wrong. Technically, it's wrong. But I mean, if a person was sincere and really trusting Jesus and just failed to say in the name of Jesus, I think that would be okay. But technically, it's not correct. But I would say most of the people that don't pray in the name of Jesus or just say for His sake or something like that, it's because they don't have a revelation of how powerful it is. Once you get that revelation, I don't think anybody would refuse to use the name of Jesus. It's powerful. Anybody with a true revelation of of God giving us Jesus giving us the power of eternity, eternity over His uh, the power of attorney over His name, man. If you had that revelation, why wouldn't you use it? And you know, this is just an opinion on my part. Again, I don't know that you make a big thing out of this, but the people who are truly, truly fanatics and committed to God always talk about Jesus. They mention Jesus prominently. Religious people will talk about Christ or some other formal, more, less intimate name. But you know what? When you really get turned on to the Lord, I guarantee it's Jesus all the way. Everybody gets into Jesus. And, and, you know, I don't know that I make a major deal out of that, but I do notice it. When a person, I listen to people on the radio and they're always talking about something about Christ. To me, the word Christ is not a name of Jesus. It's a title. It would be like president. The word Christ means anointed one. So Jesus, Christ means Jesus, the anointed one. So you don't just refer to, 
You know, if you're talking about the president, the president, the president, that's a descriptive title of what he's done and stuff. And it's not wrong to address a person like that. But if you were, you know, if uh, Laura Bush went into George Bush and always said, Mr. President. Well, it's it's not incorrect, but it shows that, you know, there's probably not the best relationship between them. If you call your husband Mr. President or something like that, Um, you know, when people really have an intimate relationship with the Lord, they start referring to Jesus. But, you know, I was, I was just teaching this last weekend out of Exodus chapter 32, and I, I think I've mentioned this in here so we don't have to turn over and look at it. But this is where Moses was up on the mountain the very first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and he got the Ten Commandments, and God communicated all of these things to him. And uh, the Lord got so mad at the people because they had made the molten calf that he was going to destroy them. And he told Moses, he says, get out of my way. He says, let my wrath wax hot and I'll destroy this nation and I'll make a brand new nation out of you, bigger and better than this. And Moses began to start pleading with the Lord and says, the people are going to hear about this. God, what, this is going to look bad on your resume. What are people going to think? It's just amazing to me the way that he reasoned with God, but he began to start basically using public opinion of how, how this will be perceived. This is going to be bad PR if you do this. And then he told him to repent and turn from this evil. And, you know, people use those examples as New Testament ways of how to pray and how to intercede. But that is totally without the name of Jesus. You know, Moses was successful in his intercession. And if Moses was successful and turned away the wrath of God, how much greater do you think Jesus interceded? Jesus didn't just plea and appeal to the Lord's sense of mercy. Jesus satisfied God's judgment by offering himself for our sins and literally took our punishment into his physical body. It And God now... His wrath is totally satisfied. He released His wrath. It's not like He just swallowed it and said, all right, I'll refuse to release my wrath. He released every ounce of wrath that He had and put it on His own Son. He punished His Son so much so that He didn't even look human hanging on the cross. He vented His wrath and totally satisfied the justice of God. And because of that, there isn't any wrath left in God for those who've accepted Jesus. And in the future, when we stand before God, the wrath of God is not going to be over their individual sins because all of their individual sins have already been judged and paid for. Jesus paid for every one of them. If a person goes to hell, what they're going to go to hell for is the rejection of Jesus. And that's what God's wrath will be stirred up over. But for those of us who have accepted Jesus, there is zero wrath towards us. And so for us to pray the way that Moses did and repent and turn from this your fierce wrath, if we say anything like that, if we say something like, God, I know that you are about to destroy the United States. Oh, God, spare us. Don't send destruction. Oh, God, have mercy on us. If you're doing that, you are undercutting what Jesus has done. You're saying that you don't believe that his intercession was complete. You believe that you can add to it, that you can increase, that you can somehow or another improve what God has done. And this is basically the way the church is praying today. The church is praying as if Jesus 
hadn't accomplished these things. We aren't praying in the name of Jesus. We may use that phrase, but the truth is we are expecting God to move because of our intercession. We're expecting to get this prayer because we've lived holy and we've gone to church and we've paid our tithes. And we aren't using the name of Jesus the way that it should be. If we had a full revelation of this, basically you're saying, Father, not because of any righteousness of my own, but because of what Jesus has done, I fully expect. And if you fully understood what Jesus has done, you wouldn't be pleading with God to spare America and not pour out His wrath and not destroy this person. And, oh God, don't put sickness on them because Jesus has already ended all of that stuff. We just do not have a full revelation of what Jesus has done. But this is what he's making reference to. He says, under this new covenant, there's coming a day that you'll never have to ask me for anything. You can go directly to the Father and use my name. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you, just as if it was me asking for it. Man, that's awesome. Do you think that God would reject Jesus over anything? No way. But you know, we don't have that same confidence when we pray because really our faith isn't in the name of Jesus. Our faith is in ourself and in our own works. If you pray and don't have absolute confidence that what you've prayed for is coming to pass, then you don't have faith in the name of Jesus. Those are strong statements, but they're absolutely true. Amen? So this is tremendous. What a great deal. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Man, that's powerful. So the name of Jesus is like giving us power of attorney. Did you know that when uh, B.F., Jamie's dad, was in the last stages, uh, he had a brain tumor and he died last October And in the last stages, he turned everything over to Jamie and gave her power of attorney so that she could do everything for him and stuff. And basically what he did was give her the legal rights to his name. And because of that, she was able to go open up bank accounts, close out his bank accounts, sell his house, uh, pay his utilities. She did everything just exactly the same as if it was BF because she had this document, the power of eternity, that he gave her. And it was just exactly the same as if BF went and did it. She could do anything in his name. And that's what Jesus did. He gave us the power of eternity. He gave us uh, rights to his name. And when we say in the name of Jesus, it has to work for us just the same as it works for him. The only... The only chink in this armor, the only thing that doesn't make this work automatically is you got to have faith. It's all activated by faith. If you don't believe it, it won't work. If you're using in the name of Jesus just as a religious statement or if it's just the way you say amen, the end, in the name of Jesus and it's just a formula that you go through and if you aren't thinking about what you're saying, then it doesn't work. But if you believe it, it means that you can receive anything because of who Jesus is. Isn't that good? That is absolutely awesome. That's powerful. I got through that quick. I'm early. I'm 15 minutes early, 20 minutes early. Anybody got a question on this? Comment. I can go back and teach you all those things, but I think we already dealt with those Old Testament intercessory prayers. I've already dealt with that, so I was just referring you to it. Yes, ma'am. Well, this is really, I mean, it's really cool when you think about it because it. It takes a lot of pressure off of you because we all know we're not, you know, where we should be all the time. So, you know, 
but was, we can take the focus off ourselves and it makes you like it makes you like Teflon. Nothing sticks because see the only the only way that Satan can discourage you is if you don't understand that you get things through Jesus and not through yourself. If you think that you have to be worthy in order to receive, then he can start mentioning to you that you got mad, you hadn't studied the word, you did this, you did that. And your faith begins to go down because your faith was in yourself and in what you've done. But if your faith is in the name of Jesus, how's he going to impugn the character of Jesus? He can't do it. There's not any of us in here that would receive an accusation and say, well, Jesus doesn't deserve it. Jesus isn't worthy. See, none of us would receive those things. But most of us, our faith isn't totally in the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus plus our own goodness. And that's the reason that when you've done something wrong, you get condemned and you pray, but you don't really expect anything to happen because you know you don't deserve it. Man, that's not putting your faith in the name of Jesus. If you understand this properly, it just really does make you immune. It's nothing can stick to you. Boy, devil, shoot your best shot. You have your shield of faith up there and it quenches all of the fiery darts of the wicked. Were you going to make a comment? Yeah, I wanted to know if um, intercessors, you're taught that you, you stand in the gap for other people. Is that... Totally Old Testament. That is totally Old Testament. Jesus is the intercessor to end all intercession. So you don't intercede for people? No, you do. The scripture talks about intercession, but how do you... There is a difference in the way New Testament intercession is done and the way Old Testament intercession is done. For instance, in the Old Testament, it was, Oh God, don't judge this person. If you were to pray that way in the New Testament, then you're undoing what Jesus has done because Jesus has already satisfied the wrath of God. So you pray differently. How does a New Testament intercessor pray? Well, it's you start from the position, Father, thank you that through Jesus your wrath has already been satisfied. You aren't about to destroy America. And so you start praising Him. Instead of, oh God, don't destroy America, you start off praising Him for Jesus and praying in the name of Jesus and, and acknowledging and appreciating what Jesus has done. But then... Uh, I, I pray things like this, that, Father, you know, it's the truth that sets people free. You aren't mad at people, but they don't know it. And so I pray scriptures like Matthew 9:38. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest that will, uh, you know, speak the truth. And so I'll say, Father, use laborers, and I'll offer myself as a laborer. God, I'm wanting to reach everybody I can. And I'll pray and ask God to help me get on new television and do things and reach further with the gospel. And so that's the kind of way that I intercede is that the word will increase and that, God, you'll give us new opportunities, that you'll help me to be bold and not compromise the word. I pray for our students that God raises up other people who get this truth and they go out and they start sharing and that the word multiplies. But I'm not pleading with God to do anything. I'm, I'm more praying, God, help us to respond to what you've already provided. It's all based on the fact that Jesus has already reconciled us to God. I'm not trying to turn an angry God away from his wrath. Yes, ma'am. So um, are there spirits over city that you need to pray away, or are you just start praying the word over the city? I believe that there are spirits over cities, okay. and I believe that they are strongholds. I believe that there are demonic powers that operate. But how do you do it? Traditionally, what you do is you bind these demonic powers, believing that if I'll bind the powers, then the people will get set free. 
And I don't think that's true. There is zero role model for that in the Bible. Jesus never did that. Paul never did it. Peter never did it. There is zero precedent for that in Scripture. And yet that's the way that intercession is done today. So if these demonic powers exist, well then, what do you do? Well, you go preach the gospel. And the gospel will set people free. And it's the only reason those demonic powers exist. Like in San Francisco, I believe that there are demons of homosexuality over San Francisco. But I don't think that the demons of homosexuality are causing the homosexuality. I believe that the homosexuality is being uh, done on an on a individual basis. And there is a concentration of demons over, over San Francisco because a homosexual was voted into office in San Francisco who started giving preferred status to homosexual and giving partner benefits to homosexual and giving recognition. And all of the homosexuals from all over the United States and the world flocked there and they brought those demons with them. It wasn't the demons that were in San Francisco that brought homosexuals there. It was the homosexuals that brought all of their demons there. So what do you do? Well, they're saying, go in and let's bind these demonic powers. No, you go preach the gospel and tell them the truth. And as the individuals get set free from homosexuality, that breaks the demonic powers that do rule over a place. But you don't go in and bind the demonic powers. That's not the way they did it in the Bible. Pete? Okay. Which one of the teachings on Tafer refutes the fact that God does not punish us like in detail uh, for our sins in the New Testament. Like, for instance, so you got Ananias and Sapphira. you got uh, the people in communion that die. you got Paul's thorn in the flesh. Which one of the teachings would refute those? i got a lot of teachings. I don't know just one. I Probably the best tape I've got is entitled God's Not Guilty. God's Not Guilty. Thank you. individual tape. But then I've got a lot of teaching. I've got an entire section... Um, on my tape list, if you've ever seen my tape list, it's got the tapes organized in categories. And I think that there's a righteousness series. I'm not sure what the series is, but it's got the book of Job, uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh, Ananias and Sapphira. It's got all of these things all grouped together. Because, But I've got lots of teachings on all that stuff. Yes, ma'am. The Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit is showing you things to come. I was like praying, wasn't asking God for any, wasn't asking God for anything special in particular. And I just kind of thought of about it as daydreaming, you know, laying before God, kind of drifting off daydreaming. But everything I saw Sunday morning between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. happened Sunday in real life. And then I didn't think about it till later, but the scripture the Lord had gave me was that one in um, Samuel about how when Samuel talked to Saul and he told him, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it all came to pass that day. So that happened to me Sunday, and I'd be like the kind of person to play things down rather than to play them up, you know? So I'm like, okay, why? And that was my question with God, and the only thing I could really come up with was with like it was just something for encouragement? Well, there's not always a purpose to stuff. I mean, it can be used for a purpose, but you know what? Your spirit knows all things. And if you just quiet yourself and get to listening, you'll just know things. It's not necessarily because God's trying to do some major deal or show you something significant. It can be, but... If you just get still and quiet before the Lord, your spirit will go. Your spirit knows everything that's going on. It knows what's going on in the world. It's know, it knows what the outcome of the Iraqi war is going to be. 
Your spirit knows everything. And if you just get quiet and listen, you'll know things that not necessarily, it's not necessarily being revealed to you for some specific purpose. It's just you, you can know things. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I was just wondering what, um, how, how you interpret, and if this is long, or you, I'll, you don't have to answer it, but uh, if it's too long, but how whatever you bind on, uh, in, on earth will be, what you ever bound in heaven will be bound in heaven, whatever you bound on earth will be bound on earth. That scripture, how do you interpret that in the context of not these big demonic powers that you're binding over areas to? Well, that's Matthew chapter 18. And if you were to take it in its context, it's talking about church government. It's talking about if your brother offends against you, go and talk to him by yourself. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more. If he doesn't listen to them, bring it before the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, make him as a heathen man or as a publican. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. People take that verse out of context and make it a major doctrine. It's basically just saying that, you know what, if the church as a group under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit executes discipline upon a person, God will enforce it is the point that he's making. Now, there are other applications, but again, it's been, it's been blown way out of proportion to where you have to bind all of these things. It's, it's the same principle that's involved when people find out that angels are real and that angels start working. They start saying, so you've got to start commanding your angels and you've got to tell your angels what to do and you've got to give your angels an assignment. And there are people that take a truth and that is that God uses angels. Angels are involved in our life. Like I was driving home Sunday night and there was an uh, elk standing right in the middle of the road. And I mean, it is nothing but God that I missed that elk going 60-something miles an hour. If I'd have hit it, it could have killed us. And I, I don't doubt that there was an angel or something involved in that. God uses angels uh, to protect us. And so that's the truth. But when you start saying you've got to direct them and you've got to loose them and you've got to speak this and you've got to do all this stuff, you know what? You're putting yourself into a position where you are responsible for controlling all of these angels. The scripture says that your angel in heaven is constantly beholding the face of the Lord. They get their orders from God, not directly from you. You don't have to speak to your angels. What would happen if you failed to speak to one? What would happen if you just didn't pray that day? Does that mean that your angels get the day off because you didn't pray and give them an assignment and stuff like this? No, what's happening is you just worship the Lord and if you have a crisis, you say, Jesus, and Jesus will figure out which angel is the closest, which one he wants to use. He will tell them how to do it. He can figure it out better than you can. But there are some people, see, that have gotten so into this that they tell the angels everything to do. I missed it. I slammed on my brakes and swerved and just barely missed that thing. I nearly bought that elk. Um, I have, my sister is a born-again believer, and she's. my dad has said that she's told him that she does know her angel, that she has talked to her angel, but she doesn't tell it what to do. She just recognizes that it's there. So, I mean, have you... That is possible because he is there. There are angels around us constantly. I've seen people. 
People have come to me and they see angels standing around me. And when I've done something, they've seen angels do that. I've never seen an angel. I don't care if I ever do see an angel. It's not important because I believe that they're there. So I don't have to see it. But So I guess it's possible that you could see your angel. But uh, I can't see any benefit to it because, again... Um, Angels, every time they did manifest themselves, people would be overwhelmed because of their supernatural presence and power and they would fall down and people would start to worship angels and every time angels refuse worship. They always point people to the Lord. Angels are not to be worshipped. They aren't to be reverenced. They aren't such things as, you know, like the Catholics have saints and all of these different... Uh, St. Christopher stuff that's supposed to protect you and all that. That stuff is weird and it's actually putting faith in angels more than faith in God. So they do exist and uh, I'm not saying that we ignore them but there certainly shouldn't be any emphasis on it. If I had ever seen an angel of mine I would probably not mention it or if I mentioned it it would be in passing. It wouldn't be a focus. It's nothing like seeing the Lord and knowing the Lord. So there shouldn't be an undue emphasis put on it. I'm going to let you go early. Let you go five minutes early. What a guy.